Um, I'm a man of very simple pleasures, and I think one of the best feelings currently is despite the technological age that we're in, is when you're in a group scenario, and people are just chatting, and they're talking about something, and you throw in a bit of knowledge, and a load of people receive that knowledge with a lot of doubt in their hearts, and so someone pulls out their mobile device, Googles it to find out that you were indeed right. <laughs> I was camping at the weekend with my best mate, Ben, and Ben is a football fan, and I follow football as much as I follow the local shipping forecast. Um, <laughs> But we were just chatting, and 95% of you, I'm sure, are far too busy to like daytime television. But we were chatting about daytime television. I like Countdown. He is a big fan of Homes Under the Hammer. Anyone watch that program? No, you're too busy. Um, but the reason he likes Homes Under the Hammer is because the host of Homes Under the Hammer is his favorite Aston Villa player, Dion Dublin. We were just chatting, and I said, didn't Dion Dublin once play for Man United? He then said, no. And I, I wasn't too sure about that. So I said, I'm not too sure about that. He pulled out his phone. There was silence. Palpable. You could cut the tension with a knife. Two minutes later, he puts his phone back in his pocket. Doesn't say a word. <laughs> All eyes on him. Boom, I was right. 92 to 94, Dion Dublin played for Man United. I was right, and I felt amazing for the rest of the weekend. It's one of the best feelings I've ever experienced when you are so right. It feels so good. Especially if you're a parent, right? You get it right. You are right. However, there's a darker side, I think. Sometimes we think that what we're doing is right and anyone else who does otherwise is wrong. Sometimes we think that the way we believe about Jesus or the Bible or the world is so right that anyone else is wrong. And so what we do is we create echo chambers. It's what Twitter, Facebook, Instagram all are. And if people have opposing views to us, if they disagree with us, if we find their views slightly annoying, if they eat different food to us, if they hang out in different circles, listen to different type of music, then we unfollow them, we mute them, or we block them. And we create a whole world around us that solely affirms our own position, and so we feel great about it. And the problem is, that doesn't just happen online. I think it happens in church too. I think sometimes we fall into the trap of only hanging out with people that read the Bible the same way that we do, or they understand Jesus in a similar way, or they look like us, or they listen to music like us, or they listen to the same podcast as us. And when we come to church, we just sit with those guys. And I want to suggest today that our mission as the church of God is to bring people who are on the fringes of society into the core of society and be a reflection of what we may one day see in heaven. In the word reconciliation literally means to bring back together. And so today we're going to look at what is our job as the church of God in reconciling all people in society as well as the church. No cliques. No tribes, no echo chambers, but one as Jesus and the Father are one. So if you've got a Bible nearby, why don't you flick it open to um, John chapter 8. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him. And he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. 
When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, he said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you speak through your word today. You speak through our brothers and sisters in the church and you speak by your spirit. And I pray that as we unpack this passage of scripture, may you challenge us, provoke us, infuse us, encourage us to live a life that lives more like your son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. This story is one of Jesus' greatest hits. And as such, whether this is your first time to church in a long time or, or you come regularly, you may have your own assumptions as to what this story is all about. Is it just a simple demonstration of Jesus' love for people? Or is it potentially a model for how we as followers of Jesus should be living our lives? I didn't grow up going to church whatsoever, um, and, but our family had a very particular way of resolving conflict. Now, I'm sure in your homes, when it came to conflict with family, it was a, it was a civil affair, get around a table, say what was wrong, and then we all go away loving each other daily, right? Well, our family wasn't like that at all. And in the Christmas of 2000, I was 12 years old, and some joker thought it'd be a great idea to buy me a BB gun. Don't know if you remember those, they fire little plastic pellets. But we Christmas crackers went round, and in my Christmas cracker, I found a screwdriver. Now, up until that day, I never knew why screwdrivers were in Christmas crackers. However, that day I realized its sole purpose is to take apart a BB gun over the, over the Christmas dinner, stretch the spring, and then compress it back in, squeezing so tightly that you increase its velocity about 10 times, making it a near-fatal instrument. So I did that. We all tuck into Christmas dinner, we're all on our laps, we didn't have a dining table at home and we're all on our laps eating dinner and I clock that my brother is sitting next to a metallic radiator so my cogs start turning and I think, well, if I shoot a BB pellet, a little bit of plastic, to the radiator, it'll ping, it'll make him jump, we'll all laugh, high five and everyone has a lovely Christmas day. My aim was true that day, it did hit the radiator which then made my brother jump which made him stand up, which made his Christmas dinner fall on the floor, which made him grab my neck and pummel me to an inch of my life, which then the injustice of it, my mum then grounds me for the rest of Christmas day and I'm sat in the bedroom kind of throwing a ball against the wall and catching it. The next day, Boxing Day comes, we all wake up, I've just had Christmas day in my bedroom, we'll make breakfast, no one mentions it ever again. It's how conflict was resolved in our house. There'll be some kind of explosion of either violence or words and then everyone would go to sleep, would wake up as if nothing had ever happened. Now I'm sure for you guys, you write documents that say I will not do this thing ever again and you're all high-fiving. But the thing is, is the resolution of conflict is an important part of our Christian life. Reconciliation literally means the bringing back together. And so as we reconcile to one another, we resolve conflict. And I firmly believe that God gives us a desire to resolve conflict between people groups, between man and God and between man and man, that one day we might see a church that reflects a little bit of heaven. 
So let's take a story, take a look at this story in John's Gospel. A woman is caught in the act of adultery, we're told, and she's violently presented into the middle of this holy space, the temple, in front of one of the most famous preachers of their time, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in front of lawyers and religious leaders of the day. Can you imagine the poor woman's shame? And also the injustice of it, because even though I didn't do very well at science at GCSE, I know that you need two people to be caught in an act of adultery. And the thing is, the law of Moses said that both perpetrators of the act of adultery should be deserving of punishment. And so as an act of sheer injustice, there's someone missing from this picture. However, notice Jesus' response. He does not condemn. Why? Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is not shocked by our mess. Jesus is not suddenly surprised by the mess you get yourself caught into as if he hadn't imagined that kind of behavior before. John 3:17 says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. And the second thing is he didn't immediately speak. And the first thing we need to think is that when we're reconciling ourselves to society and people into the body of Christ, we need to go slow. I think we're surrounded by a culture that is quick to judge, that is quick to leave opinion, that is quick to give their opinion, whether it's on your Uber ride or whether it's on your TripAdvisor or whether it's the meal you've just had, whether you Instagram the restaurant and say, you know what, it was undercooked, bang, judgment, I'm never going there again. Or your Uber driver, driving too fast, or two stars, bang. We give judgment so quickly, we're so quick to speak, so quick to act. But you ever notice that Jesus, throughout all the Gospels, never runs anywhere. Never runs. Now, I don't think that's because he lived a lifestyle like mine where I just don't desire to run. But he never ran. In the, in the Bible, we see people running to Jesus. We see a load of activity in Mark's Gospel happening immediately around him. There was frenetic energy around him. But Jesus himself never ran. And in this passage, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they bring the woman to Jesus. Why? Well, the Bible says to see if there's any way they can accuse him. Now, I had read this passage millions of times, and I thought that the woman was on trial, but no, Jesus was on trial. And he was on trial, and he had a potential to do one of two things. Either he could have, by the law of Moses, sentenced the woman to stoning. However, throughout the Bible, he's described as the friend of sinners. One gospel writer says that people were so up for getting to Jesus, they were willing to trample over one another to hear his teaching. Tax collectors, prostitutes, fishermen, the people on the outskirts society found their refuge at Jesus' feet. And so if he had condemned this woman to stoning, he would have lost that title. The second thing he could have done is nothing. But then he would have lost his, his, um, he would have lost his reputation with the religious lawyers of the day as one who doesn't actually follow the law of Moses. But what does he do? He does something completely different. The thing is, is the world has got it twisted when it comes to justice and mercy. Justice is simple, it's easy. You've done something wrong, you deserve punishment. You've done something good, here's a reward. But mercy, mercy says that despite your actions, you're gonna receive a blessing. Mercy says that you are worth far more than the, great, the worst thing you've ever done. 
Mercy says that I'm gonna look you in the eye and despite what you've done, what's around you, I'm gonna try and love you. And mercy is like what Mother Teresa says, it's like giving until it hurts and then giving some more. But the problem is, is mercy takes time. Justice is quick, it's easy, but mercy takes time. When I was new to church and 16 years old, I did what every Christian male 16-year-old who's looking for a girlfriend does, and I learned the guitar. Um, learned the first four chords I needed and would sit around the campfire at things like Focus and just say, oh, lost in wonder, as all the girls are coming in and then sewing it. But the thing is, is one day I was, I was also very cool, so I took my mum to the cinema to see Batman Begins, and we're standing in the queue, and in front of us were two guys from our youth group, and... I heard my name being mentioned as they were talking about the youth group. And so my ears pricked up. I was like, interesting. And one of them, whose name, we'll call him Bob. His actual name was Matt, but we'll call him Bob for now. <laughs> he, said, um, he said, I really want to wrap Alex Raymond's new guitar around his head. That's what he said. And I mean, like, retrospectively, I get where he's coming from. I was a bit annoying. But um, my mum is not a polite mother. She also heard this. So I had to grab her by the arm and move to the next cinema queue. And all the way through, Batman Begins almost restrain her so she didn't go up and chat to Bob slash Matt and tell him what she thought. However, after that moment, I hated the guy. I really struggled. He was a wonderful human being. He did amazing creative things. He used to make all our videos for our youth group, whether it was a weekend away or whether it was the notices. He did all the video editing. But what I would do is I'd find the one flaw in his work and like a common cold, spread it around the youth group and be like, oh, do you see that transition? Awful, awful. Who does he think he is? And I'll just go around for ages doing that kind of thing, just because I didn't like the guy and I held this grudge and it made me act completely un-Jesus-like. And then my pastor said, would you come and lead worship at this thing? It's about a four-hour drive away. I'll pick you up in the morning. I was like, yeah, that'd be great. So I got in his car early morning, sat on the back seat, and there was Bob slash Matt sitting in the car. He had no idea about the grudge I held over him. He was like, hey, me, how you doing? Da, da, da. He had been living his life two years, but I had been holding this grudge. And so we spent eight hours in a car that day, and I got to learn a bit about the guy. Got to learn about his family. We would chat. Got to learn that actually he'd been turned away from leading worship because he didn't have a strong voice, and so he, he really wanted to sing. He really wanted to do that stuff, but just didn't have the ability he also felt that he was on the fringes of the youth group, whereas I kind of had just gone in straight away and got, got to hang out with the cool kids. And he just had some resentment around that. And so as I spent time with the guy, I started to learn there's more to him than that one act in the cinema queue to see Batman Begins. The thing is, mercy takes time. And then years later, we're really great friends. I love Bob slash Matt. I went to his wedding. It's a really good time. Mercy takes time. Go slow. If there are people that you struggle with, if there are people you don't quite understand, if there are people who, who you don't understand how they live their life, spend time with them. I'm a bit of a words nerd. Society literally means um, companions. So society is all about how can we be companions. Now, if you've got any French speakers in the room, companion literally means to break bread with. So how we, as the church, with the central act of our worship being the breaking of bread, gonna be people that step out of our comfort zone and invite people over to dinner who we disagree with. 
who we invite people over to dinner who we find a trouble, who we invite people over to dinner who they play their music too loud down our street, or we can smell their house because of the substances they are consuming, or that people who we just don't understand, we don't get. Are we willing to say there is a place at my table for you? Go slow, so mercy. The second thing Jesus did is he went low. To go low. As this woman is pulled in front of Jesus, they have the very expectation that he's either gonna sentence her to death or he's gonna let her go free. And yet he does neither of that. He gets down to her level. He bends right down, gets right down in the dirt. He stoops down. He takes the argument from the, he takes the attention from the argument to the person, from the theory to the practice, from the law to grace. Posture is everything. Jesus goes down continually throughout Scripture and we find that one of the writers of the Bible says that Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Yet he came down to be like a servant. And some of us are weighed down so much by our bad mistakes, by our mess, by our baggage, by the relationships we're caught up in. And if we who come to church will find it okay to walk through the the doors of the church, if we're struggling with that stuff, then how much more our neighbours, our family members, our colleagues at work, the people we pass by on the street, how much will they be feeling likewise? And yet, we have the answer. Yet, we have the hope that the world is looking for. We have the solution. Romans 8 is translated like this in the message translation of the Bible. With the arrival of Jesus, the Messiah, the fateful dilemma is resolved. Those who enter into Christ's being here for us no longer have to live under a continuous, low-lying black cloud. A new power is in operation. The spirit of life in Christ, like a strong wind, has magnificently cleared the air, freeing you from a fated lifetime of brutal tyranny at the hands of sin and death. God went for the jugular when he sent his own son, Jesus. He didn't deal with a problem as something remote and unimportant. In his son, Jesus, he personally took on the human condition, entered the disordered mess of struggling humanity in order to set it right once and for all. The law code, weakened as it always was by fractured human nature, could never have done that. Some of us today walk around life as if we're under a low-lying cloud. Some of our friends walk around life as if they are living under a low-lying cloud. However, the church is on this earth to witness the fact that there is a new power in operation. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. As Jesus looks at the woman caught in adultery, he realizes in that moment that she is just another person he will go to the cross for. As you, as we, as our mess, as the mess outside these four walls gets presented in the temple courts, Jesus realizes that we are another person that he is going to go to the cross for. It's exactly why he went to the cross. Case dismissed. Go low. Find the people in your family who are mixing with the wrong people. Find the colleagues doing the wrong stuff, the neighbors listening to music too loud or arguing all the way through the night. And live a life that tells the greatest story that their case is dismissed. They no longer have to live life under a low-lying black cloud. Freedom is available. Go slow. Go low. And finally, 
Go on. For years, I've read this story as an instruction on how to forgive others. I put myself in the place of Jesus, and despite people's opinion of other people, I would try and live the person, love the person, bring them back into the fold of society like some middle-class messiah. However, it's not how we're to read the story. We are the ones caught in the act of adultery. We each one of us have done something shameful. We each one of us have broken one of the big 10. Now, some of you might not have committed murder or coveted your neighbor's donkey, but I'm sure some of us are guilty of not keeping the Sabbath day holy always. I'm sure some of us are guilty of not honoring our mothers and fathers And we're dragged in front of Jesus for sentencing. And he looks at us. He looks at you. He looks at me. And he says, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. We are forgiven so we can live free lives. We're forgiven so we can walk unashamed. We are forgiven so we can walk lightly, uninhibited by the world, by what the world may say of us. We are forgiven to be a blessing and to pronounce forgiveness to all people, go on, go and sin no more. So how do we live a life free of sin? Well, it's practically impossible, unless we do what one of the Bible writers says and we live in him. Jesus is the only person who lived a sin-free life and so is the only one who would have been able to throw the first stone. So we need to live in him. And how do we do that? Well, we ask. We ask for his Holy Spirit to live in us and do our utmost to spend our time with him, reading the word of God and spending time communicating with our Father in prayer. And I firmly believe that those on the margins of society, whether it's in church or outside of church, may be brought into the fold if we are reconciled one to another because we have our being in Jesus. Because Jesus, final, one of his final prayers of his time spent on earth, he looks out on Jerusalem and says, Lord, may they be one as I and my Father are one. And so as we spend time with Jesus, we develop a heart for unity. And we as the church of God have a mission to go slow when it comes to judgment, to go low when it comes to compassion, and to go on believing that we are forgiven. And we have a mandate to forgive one another and by the Holy Spirit live lives that look like the one who gave it all so we may live freely. But we need to ask, just we stand and we're gonna pray.